Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and today I'm going to talk to Edward Dunsworth on a transnational history of farm labor in 20th century Canada. Edward Dunsworth is assistant professor in the Department of History at McGill University. He is the author of Harvesting Labor, Tobacco, and the Global Making of Canada's Agricultural Workforce. It was published by McGill-Queens University Press in 2022. This book is part of the McGill-Queens University Press series, Rethinking Canada in the World, edited by Ian Mackay and Sean Mills. And it's supported by the Wilson Institute for Canadian History, one of our own sponsors of this podcast. Harvesting Labour won the 2023 Henry A. Wallace Award by the Agricultural History Society for the best book on any aspect of agricultural history outside the United States. Ed, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Thanks for having me, Greg. This book started as your PhD thesis, and that means it's the product of many years of research and writing. What motivated you to do this work? The way I really got into the subject uh, happened through a summer job that I got coming out of university uh, doing my undergraduate degree. I got a job after uh, after finishing my undergrad uh, working as a laborer teacher with a literacy organization called Frontier College. Um, this was like a, a hundred plus year old program um, that basically brought Canadian young people to work with um, new immigrants and migrant workers in all kinds of different economic sectors throughout uh, the program's history. Um, so you used to have people working in railroad camps and lumber lumber camps and mines and things like this. Um, in recent decades, it had young people working with uh, migrant farm workers, um, working alongside them as, as farm workers, living in bunkhouses with them, and after hours teaching the occasional um, English or computer literacy class. Um, so I did that job coming out of university and worked on a, a tree nursery and later a broccoli farm with migrant workers from Mexico uh, and was really just had my life completely changed by this experience. I had only been kind of vaguely aware before of the existence of migrant farm workers in Canada. Um, so this was really a uh, baptism by fire uh, in, into the subject. Um, and I was, I was really fascinated uh, to learn more. I was really motivated uh, politically by some of the injustices I encountered that uh, these uh, men, the people I worked with were all men, uh, experienced. Uh, so it kind of became a, an obsession of mine on, on some different levels. Um, so a couple of years later, I decided to go back uh, to graduate studies. I, I went for a master's and later continued with a PhD. Uh, and so I picked the, the history of farm labor um, as my topic to really dive into. Um, and then through various um, 
various events, I kind of landed on on tobacco as a, a case study to focus these these efforts. Uh, but it really came from this experience uh, working with with Mexican migrant farm workers. Now, before we get into the guts of your book, can you briefly tell us about the history of the tobacco belt in southwestern Ontario, both the historic tobacco belt and what became the new tobacco belt, uh, and the part of Ontario that it covers? Sure. Um, so tobacco has been grown in what's now Ontario for thousands of years um, by uh, Wendat and Haudenosaunee peoples and other uh, uh, agrarian peoples uh, speaking Iroquoian languages. Um, so tobacco has a really long history uh, in this part of the world. Um, as a commercial crop, its history is more recent, goes back to the mid-19th century or so. Uh, there were early uh, commercial tobacco crops grown um, close to the, the Windsor-Detroit border, so in Essex and Kent counties especially. Um, a lot of those mid-19th century crops were grown by um, Americans uh, moving up to Ontario, uh, including uh, African Americans uh, fleeing slavery, uh, but, but also uh, white American immigrants as well. Um, so there's an early kind of commercial history in that very uh, southwestern tip of Ontario. Uh, the crop really takes off commercially a few decades later, uh, especially in the 1920s and 30s, uh, slightly east, um, especially in Norfolk County uh, and nearby counties, um, Oxford uh, and Elgin as well. Um, and that that is a, a huge boom. And that area becomes uh, quickly becomes the epicenter of, of Canada's um Tobacco, uh, tobacco sector uh, that becomes Canada's new tobacco belt. Um, what spurs that that big boom in the 20s and 30s is basically the uh, worldwide surging worldwide demand for cigarettes, uh, and kind of the um, discovery or, or renewed understanding of the lands in that part of Ontario being perfect for the cultivation of tobacco. Uh, so there's uh, light sandy soils in this part of Ontario, uh, which were considered basically wasteland uh, for other types of agricultural production, but were perfect for growing the type of tobacco used in cigarettes. Um, so those factors come together to produce a big boom in this region, uh, and this becomes the, the heartland of Canadian tobacco production, um, which which it is to this day, actually. Uh, and for people who aren't familiar with uh, the counties in Ontario, as I imagine most listeners, listeners are not, uh, Norfolk County and those other places I mentioned, uh, it's, it's basically roughly, uh, roughly halfway between uh, Hamilton and London. So if you travel on the highway from, from Hamilton to London, uh, about halfway, you take a, a left and head towards Lake Erie. Um, and if you travel that way in, you know, August, July, August, September, even to this day, uh, you'll very quickly be driving through uh, light green leafy fields of tobacco plants. You used a combination of sources, documentary and oral, to reconstruct this history. So I was wondering if you could describe your experience with and perhaps even your philosophy of these two very different primary sources. Sure. Um, I guess my research methodology, in short, if I were to describe my philosophy of research for this project, it would be uh, gluttony or voraciousness, uh, where I just tried to get my hands on every single source I could possibly find uh, of all different varieties. Um, so oral histories, archives, newspapers, documentary films, et cetera, et cetera. Um, for this project, uh, I, I wanted to do it transnationally. So uh, 
understand tobacco and its workforce, not only in the place where people worked, but also in the places where they came from, uh, which was you know sundry locations around the globe. Uh, so a key part of my research methodology involved traveling back to the places where migrants uh, came from. So I conducted research not only in various places here in Canada, but also in the U.S. and in Jamaica and in Barbados, uh, where migrant workers later came um, from the Caribbean. Um, in both Jamaica and Barbados and also in Canada, I conducted oral history interviews. Um, and yeah, I would say you do have to treat those uh, those sources differently than documentary sources. Um, the way I kind of think about it is not so much as, as a binary between um, oral history sources and documentary sources, um, but more as a, a more kind of complex and, and diverse uh, body of, of sources, uh, where you really have to treat every type of source uh, on its own terms and uh, be attentive to its own particularities. Um, so yes, there's particular considerations with, with oral history, um, but there's also particular considerations with each type of documentary evidence you might look at. You look at um, a statistical report by a mid-20th century government very differently than you'd look at, um, you know, the letter of a single bureaucrat uh, in a different time and place or, or whatever. Um, when we're thinking about oral histories in particular, the the way you need to treat them uh, sensitively and, and treat them a bit differently than you might some other source um, you have to be attentive to what oral history sources are and what they're uh, really strong, how they're really strong. So oral history sources are really strong, um, not only for showing uh, people's experiences. Uh, yes, they're, they're very strong for that. Uh, but also showing how people uh, remember their experiences, make sense of their experiences, and kind of form uh, their worldviews based on the the experiences they have. Um, so that, that informs part of how I look at, at oral history sources. And so what are the opportunities and challenges, for that matter, of conducting the kind of transnational oral and documentary history that you've done? Um, well, the opportunities are huge. Um, for my project, uh, especially conducting oral history interviews with migrant farm workers uh, from Jamaica and Barbados uh, who are back in their home countries, um, this opened up uh, a whole lot. Uh, to me, uh, in terms of what I what I could hear in my interviews, um, listeners might be aware uh, of some of the contours of, of Canada's migrant uh, labor system. Uh, but essentially, migrant farm workers uh, have a highly constrained set of rights. Um, their immigration status is uh, basically in, in certain measure controlled by their employer. Um, so uh, protesting workers or workers deemed problematic in, in particular ways can be basically summarily deported uh, to their home countries. So there's really strong dis disincentives for workers uh, speaking out against poor conditions. So that obviously would present uh, challenges for researchers interviewing workers still on contract in Canada. Um, for this project, I interviewed uh, mostly workers who are back in their home countries and no longer participating in the program. Um, so they no longer felt these disincentives against speaking out. Um, so this led to hearing a lot of stories that I probably wouldn't have heard if I had interviewed these same workers during their contracts in Canada. Um, so stories about workers engaging in wildcat strikes, um, stories of uh, conflict with uh, Canadian uh, residents on, on the streets of the, the rural towns, uh, where they, where they work uh, close to well in Canada, um, stories of uh, 
uh, slowdowns and other uh, tactics of resistance at work. Um, really fascinating stuff that I heard in these interviews. And I think the, that transnational um, methodology was key to that. Um, beyond the, the oral history interviews, um, the, conducting research transnationally uh, in archives, I think, allowed me to get a much better understanding of how the various guest worker programs that brought workers to work in tobacco, um, how they were shaped not only by factors in Canada, but also, importantly, by um, the interests of sending countries. Um, so uh, in the Caribbean, for example, uh, in Jamaica, uh, I found some really interesting documents that really shed light on how much of a role the Jamaican government played in shaping um, the seasonal agricultural workers program that uh, brings workers from Jamaica and now from other countries as well uh, to work in Canada. Um, actually, it turns out a lot of the uh, core and most notable features of that program uh, are in there because they were demanded by Jamaican authorities. Um, so that was, that was quite fascinating and presents uh, a view of this uh, program that's um, very different from one where it's simply the, the global northern country of Canada dictating terms to its uh, global south um, partners. Uh, actually, I found a much more complex relationship and uh, conducting research in sending countries is absolutely key to that. So where did this farm labor come from during the interwar years? And what was their experience working in the tobacco belt? As part of your answer, I'd like to know also some of the characteristics of the labor force and the relationship that the majority had with tobacco farm owners, at least in this era. So in the interwar years, so the very early years of this uh, boom and what would become the new tobacco belt, as it was called, um, easy way to break down the workforce is to separate it uh, between locals and outsiders. Um, so there is a, a lot of local labor, uh, pre-existing local farm populations, um, some some of those being farmers who switch to growing tobacco. Um, some of that local population being the source for seasonal labor. Um, so that's that's an important um, important uh, factor of the workforce. Um, outsiders comprise uh, all sorts of people. Um, short distance migrants from nearby cities like Hamilton and Toronto and, and even Montreal, which is not quite so nearby, but you know, um, five, six, seven hours away. Um, and a lot of those uh, in both categories, both um, Locals and outsiders, a lot of them are uh, comprised of uh, immigrants, um, recent immigrants, uh, especially from Europe. Uh, the key countries here are uh, Hungary and Belgium, uh, but also immigrants from Lithuania, Poland, Ukraine, um, ethnic Germans, etc. Um, so this, uh, from the very early days of tobacco, as with many other crops, uh, there's this uh, big, uh, important distinction between uh, locals who have more steady involvement in the production of the crop and migrants who come in at periods of, of high labor demand, uh, especially the harvest. So uh, what changed during the Great Depression? Um, during the Great Depression, uh, a few things change. Uh, for one, you see uh, a huge increase um, in the arrivals of uh, job seekers uh, looking for work during the harvest. Um, this include some quite dramatic scenes in some years of thousands of workers uh, descending upon the tobacco belt, these small rural villages and towns um, looking for work. Um, these are 
kind of familiar depression stories similar to you know Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath and stories of people uh, mostly uh, single men riding the rails and looking for work. Um, and so the Tobacco Belt became uh, very much a, a node uh, in this network, a place where this uh, sort of thing was happening. Um, so that's one big thing that the changes in the depression. Uh, there's these huge arrivals of job seekers. Um, and this produces a lot of anxiety uh, among locals who are worried about the social cons- consequences of all these uh, unattached um, men, sometimes uh, desperate uh, for work, um, descending uh, upon their their villages and towns. That uh, creates anxieties for. Um, provincial and federal authorities who want to better manage the movement of unemployed people and so on. Uh, So this becomes a a major um, source of contention during the Depression. Uh, Another thing that changes in the Depression is the increase in radical politics in the tobacco belt. Um, This is driven especially by Hungarian immigrants um, who have uh, a propensity um, for um, joining the Communist Party and communist-affiliated organizations uh, in this era. Um, So as as more Hungarians join the tobacco belt, um, many of whom are bringing radical traditions uh, from back home, um, the the district uh, has a greater radical presence. Um, So uh, communist organizations, uh, circulation of of communist newspapers, uh, including the Hungarian, uh, Hungarian Hungarian-Canadian communist newspaper, and there's also other other of tobacco's ethnic groups are also involved in this story as well, but the Hungarians are really key. Um, both these big changes in the Depression, um, the mass arrival of uh, transients, as they were called, transient migrants, transient workers, uh, and also the increasing rad- radicalization, um, these things really come to a head in 1939 when there's this big uh, flashpoint uh, in the tobacco belt, uh, uh, in the Depression-era tobacco belt. Um, so in 1939, there's the most dramatic of all these arrivals of migrants when uh, 10,000, an estimated 10,000 migrants come to the tobacco belt looking for work. Um, the harvest is a bit late that year. Uh, and even if it wasn't late, there's not nearly enough jobs for all these people um, when you consider the number of jobs that are kind of already uh, promised to, to others and so on. Uh, there's not nearly enough jobs for 10,000 uh, unattached people coming into the district. Um, this alone causes uh, a lot of worry and and strain uh, on the local towns. Uh, It's compounded by the fact that there's a a big union drive um, in this same year. Uh, The formation of a a fledgling tobacco workers union uh, led by uh, communists, both local communists and also um, kind of transient communist organizers from Toronto and elsewhere. Um, So these these two factors really come to a head in this this big uh, crisis year, conflict year of 1939. Um, so the, the depression basically uh, intensifies things and, and creates um, new love, new conflicts uh, in these different ways. Now, everything seems to change after the Second World War. And uh, I'd like you to sort of describe what occurs, maybe through the eyes of a person who was there. So as our witness to yesterday, tell us the type of labor force that you would have seen in 1975 compared to 1945, perhaps starting with the earlier date and then what you would have seen in 1975. 
1945, uh, you would have seen a workforce kind of along the lines of, of what I was discussing earlier. Uh, so a lot of uh, recent European immigrants uh, to Canada, uh, especially from Hungary and Belgium and also the other countries I mentioned. Uh, you'd also see a decent number of American immigrants, both people who had come permanently from uh, the tobacco producing states in the U.S. Um, to settle and work as farmers, much like the European immigrants, um, and also migrant workers from the U.S. who come um, during peak labor needs, especially during the harvest. Um, in 45, then you'd also have the other side, uh, uh, more uh, locally rooted uh, people from, from longer standing local families. Um, that would include uh, Anglo-Canadians uh, and also uh, some First Nations uh, working in tobacco, particularly from uh, Six Nations uh, and uh, the three uh, reserves um, just south of London. Uh, Muncie, Delaware, uh, and uh, Chippewa of the Thames, uh, for example. Um, so that's that's kind of the picture in '45, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, fast forward 30 years to 1975. Um, it's not a sea change in what the labor force looks like, but there are some big changes that have occurred. Um, I have a, a chapter of the book um, has, has a title that's kind of indicative of some of the uh, new workers or, or at least more visible workers uh, in the workforce by 1975. And that chapter is titled uh, Hippies, Frenchies, and Girls. Um, so that gives you a bit of a sense of, of some of the changes going on here. You have more conspicuous, conspicuous uh, youth labor migration. Uh, so so that's the hippies part, which causes various anxieties uh, with uh, long-haired, uh, dope-smoking, Quebec separatist-supporting youths. Uh, this is kind of the extreme vision of uh, uh, local powers that be um, being in the tobacco belt. Um, so you have uh, uh, hippies, uh, more and more people from Quebec. Uh, this is a much more uh, market uh, trend in the post-war years, more and more labor migrants coming from Quebec, uh, and then girls. Um, still, the uh, majority of the harvest force are men by this 1975, uh, by 1975, uh, but you have a growing number of, of women working in tobacco, and especially a growing number of women working in jobs that were previously limited only to men, uh, so uh, namely the jobs of actually uh, harvesting tobacco, um, priming tobacco, it's called. So your book is particularly good at analyzing the reasons for the switch from a Canadian workforce to a migrant workforce, that is a workforce from particularly Barbados, Jamaica, Trinidad, and Tobago. What was the trajectory of this shift? Because as you describe, it was pretty gradual in some ways. And why did this shift occur? Yeah, the first thing I'd say about this shift is that it happens uh, very slowly. Uh, people often assume or get into the mode of thinking that uh, the Seasonal Agricultural Workers Program started in 1966 uh, and that that marked uh, a shift to temporary foreign workers. Um, they're kind of reading back from the, the present situation uh, in which our agricultural workforce uh, certainly is dominated by temporary foreign workers. Um, what I find in tobacco, and which applies more broadly as well, um, is actually that's not 
the case at all. There's not some magical uh, switch that's flipped uh, when this program starts. Uh, actually, the program's incredibly slow to take off. Uh, there's only 264 Jamaicans that work uh, in Canadian ag agriculture in the first year of the program, in, all in Ontario. Uh, even 20 years later, by 1985, there's uh, only 1,000 uh, participants in this program, uh, even though they now come from um, many countries, including Mexico and Trinidad and Tobago and Barbados. Um, the, the program only really takes off and this, this shift only really starts to take hold um, starting in the late 1990s uh, and, and becoming even more pronounced into the 2000s and 2010s. Um, and the, the big story I'm telling here with tobacco, but that I think in broad strokes applies to agriculture writ large, uh, is that this shift to temporary foreign workers occurs um, primarily because of the economic changes in Canadian agriculture and in tobacco, uh, and namely consolidation. Uh, so the, the steady uh, erasure and disappearance of uh, small family farms and their replacement with uh, mega farms, big agribusiness uh, that's much more capital intensive and can afford um, more costly things, such as bringing in guest workers uh, via airplane from, from foreign countries. Uh, people often think that uh, think of temporary foreign workers as cheap labor. Uh, and actually, what I one thing I explain in my book is that that's not actually quite accurate. Um, uh, they're not cheap labor. They're actually quite a bit more expensive than Canadian workers. Uh, for various reasons. One, there's uh, certain capital requirements to bring in temporary foreign workers, namely uh, bunkhouses that meet certain standards. These are things that struggling small farmers can't afford. Uh, and there's also the, the requirement to pay upfront for airfare. Um, so uh, actually, as this kind of shift was unfolding, uh, it was the newly consolidated farms that really tapped into this program, uh, not because the workers were cheap, actually they were more expensive, uh, but because they were much more exploitable, um, so they could produce at a, a much higher rate. Um, so they obviously were economically beneficial, um, but only to growers who could employ them at scale, who were uh, producing at scale with, with heavily capitalized enterprises and so on. At the very core of your book is the discussion about what the belief was at the time and even today about the reasons for this shift versus your own findings, which differ so much from the dominant narrative. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, the way I describe the dominant narrative in the book is as the labor shortage narrative. So the, the common story we get about the shift to temporary foreign workers in Canadian agriculture uh, is basically that uh, temporary foreign workers started being hired because of labor shortages. Um, why were there labor shortages? Uh, because Canadians, uh, as as, uh, as they got richer and had more opportunities, just didn't want to do farm work anymore. Uh, this is a story we're told um, and it sounds like a reasonable story, so we don't often question it. Um, actually, what I found uh, looking deeply into tobacco, which was um, one of the most important uh, sectors for the employment of, of migrant workers uh, and one of the biggest employers of farm workers in general for much of the 20th century, um, what I found by looking into it is that this, this theory doesn't really hold much water. Uh, it, it's not actually what happened. Um, actually, Canadians came to work in tobacco by the tens of thousands uh, throughout the 20th century, uh, well into the, the 1980s. Um, 
And the shift to temporary farm workers uh, did not occur simply because uh, people decided they didn't want to work in agriculture anymore. It was too difficult, um, too dirty. Um, actually, it has a lot more to do with these economic conditions um, that I mentioned. Uh, as to why that uh, labor shortage narrative uh, holds so much weight and, and holds uh, has such a hold on our kind of uh, collective understanding, uh, I think part of it is that it sounds right. Um, I think it also has to do with um, the power of growers and how successful they've been at telling uh, their version uh, of events. Um, growers have been very successful at lobbying the government for the expansion of temporary farm worker programs uh, and in uh, having their, their version of events um, kind of represented in, in the media and so on. Um, and no one's really done uh the detailed research to actually have a good understanding of uh, how this shift did occur. Um, so that's a, a big, um, a big void that, that my study um, tried to fill to put some uh, empiricism into this conversation where uh, before there's mostly been uh, kind of assumption and stereotype. So the book really gets at the heart of what the guest worker policy really entails. And I was thinking about this in terms of a CBC story last year that came out and there was a letter that was sent, an open letter sent to the Jamaican Ministry of Labor that likened conditions in Ontario to systematic slavery. And it was in response to a terrible accident that had occurred in Norfolk County with one of the workers in an accident with a tobacco harvester. Can you describe, in your view, what our current policy environment is whether it encourages these kinds of conditions and whether Canadians should reconsider this policy of the guest worker for the future. And I know that's a big question, but I just want you to very quickly sort of give us your reaction. Sure. I mean, I think the policy conditions uh, were well described by a fellow scholar of guest worker programs, uh, an activist named uh, Adriana Paz Ramirez, and she described Canada's uh, migrant labor system as one of labor apartheid. Uh, and it's a strong phrase, but I think it's appropriate. Um, there's two very different sets of rules and two very different realities uh, for workers with permanent residency status and those on temporary work visas. Uh, and that's very, very clear uh, in agriculture where a lot of uh, temporary foreign workers work. Um, so temporary foreign workers have uh, extremely limited sets of rights. Um, in the seasonal agricultural workers program, they're only coming for a few months a year. Um, they have no, uh, they gain no preferential access to permanent residency, no matter how many years they've been working in Canada. Uh, and some work for 20, 30 years, uh, 20, 30 seasons in Canada, um, but have no opportunity to stay here and bring their families. Um, there's often appalling conditions on these farms, extremely crowded and unsanitary living conditions, very dangerous uh, working conditions. Agriculture is one of the most dangerous uh, sectors in our economy. Um, so in a nutshell, I think the situation's uh, quite bleak. Uh, and I think it's something that Canadians uh, really should be uh, ashamed of. And I think when they are confronted with it, they, they do feel that. Um, I think... Uh, Part of the problem is um, converting that that feeling of, of shame and outra outrage into political action, um, and that's been uh, an ongoing project that um, activists uh, are very much engaged in. Uh, it's one that's uh, 
only to this point reaped some small benefits. Um, so, so the the struggle uh, is very much continuing uh, uh, on that front. Well, on that front as well, you've uh, recently assisted writing and publishing a memoir of one of these migrant workers, and it's entitled Harvesting Freedom. So tell us just a very little bit about why you did this and the fact that it's come out a year after your um, other book and the connection to harvesting labor. Sure. Um, yeah, so this book uh, is uh, the autobiography of Gabriel Aladua, who's a former migrant farm worker from St. Lucia in the Caribbean. Um, he worked as a migrant farm worker in Canada for five years. Um, he, unlike most migrant farm workers, ended up being able to stay in Canada uh, permanently. Uh, I don't need to get into the, the story of that. It's in the book. Um and since uh, settling permanently in Canada, he's become a leading voice of the migrant justice movement um, and a, a key advocate for improved uh, rights and conditions for migrant farm workers. Um, I met Gabriel uh, through kind of activist networks um, in 2016 um, and kind of got to know him over a couple of years and uh, eventually approached him uh, with this idea of writing a memoir. Um, and I thought it would be a great idea uh, because Gabriel is such a powerful storyteller and such a powerful advocate for migrant farm workers um, coming from his own experience. Um, anyone who's ever heard Gabriel speak um, can, can attest to that. Um, he wasn't quite sure at first, and uh, but we, we re-broached the subject a couple of years later, and uh, at that point he said he was interested. Um, so this kind of became my postdoctoral project uh, in a way. I was at York University for a postdoc. Um, and during that, that time, um, which uh, was interrupted by uh, the, the beginning of COVID, um, Gabriel and I sat down for, I think, 11 uh, hour-long oral history interviews. Um, we eventually uh, developed... Um, cleaned up transcripts of that and, and used that as the basis to craft his memoir, um, going back and forth uh, over email and having frequent Zoom meetings uh, after I, I moved away from Toronto and, and to Montreal. Um, and that's kind of the method by which we uh, we put together um, this book. Um, so there's not a, a direct link with um, my own book uh, about tobacco, other than obviously being in, in the very similar orbit of, of interest in uh, farm labor and migrant farm labor and so on. Um, they do have extremely similar titles. Um, that's really, it's just an accident, actually. Um, it just kind of happened. It wasn't planned at all. And the title of Gabriel's book, Harvesting Freedom, is borrowed from a, uh, a campaign um, that was called the Harvesting Freedom Caravan um, that uh, the activist group uh, Justicia, or Justice for Migrant Workers, put on in 2016 uh, to mark the 50th anniversary of the Seasonal Agricultural uh, Workers Program. And they led a caravan from uh, Leamington to Ottawa uh, to, to demand permanent status for migrant farm workers and, and other improvements. Um, so we, we drew the title of his book from that campaign, which, which he was a part of. And it's just kind of an accident that it uh, has the same first word as my, as my title. <laughs> well, Ed, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Greg. It was a treat. My 
My guest today was Edward Dunsworth. His book, Harvesting Labor, Tobacco and the Global Making of Canada's Agricultural Workforce, was published by McGill-Queen's University Press in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring original documents uh, to life. We want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, the University of Regina Press, the University of Ottawa Press, as well as McGill-Queen's University Press, which published this book. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on June 26, 2023. This podcast is supported by our producer, Jessica Schmidt, and the University of Toronto Press Journal team.